This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. The hot question of the day is about that motion by Victoria City Council to ask the Department of National Defense and Veterans Affairs Canada to help pay for Remembrance Day. The City Council saying their costs for policing of quote-unquote military events is going up they want veterans to help pay for it haven't they paid enough haven't veterans paid enough already take a look at how many these veterans paid the ultimate price laying down their own lives so this idiot council here can do stuff like this is unreal and to do it on d-day yesterday when the entire world was focused on the sacrifice of Canadians who laid their lives down on that beach, and, and then they pass a motion like that on D-Day, that to me just looked deliberate and just so insulting. And the guy who's leading the charge there is this city councillor, Ben Isit. And look, this guy, he's very, very uh, well documented on the record that he's a pacifist and he's an anti-militarist, as he describes himself. So he's, he was critical of the Victoria bidding for the Invictus Games, for example, which has wounded soldiers competing in the Invictus Games. And he was against that for glorifying war. I mean, that's fine. You can have your own personal opinions. That's what freedom is about in our country. But to do something like this, I thought was just disgusting. That's our hot question of the day. What do you think about Victoria City Council asking veterans to help pay for military events like Remembrance Day? Would you say that is ungrateful and insulting? Or would you say that's a good move for taxpayers? We're already getting calls in the buzz line on this. Here's one. I don't see what all the outrage is. I'm all for the military and I'm a supporter of the military. But what they said isn't that wrong. The federal government should pay for all this stuff. It is a federal responsibility. And to paying all this outrage, oh, my goodness, how dare they say that? I mean, it's just way over the top because, again, people are latching on to something that's important and maybe a controversial subject and looking for sympathy or empathy. It, there's nothing wrong with what they said. I think it's right. Now, there is something wrong with it. To call Remembrance Day a military event, it's not a military event. It's a community event to honor the people who sacrificed for us. At CKNW on Twitter is where you can vote in that question today. At CKNW on Twitter. Phone the buzz line, 604-331-2899. Okay, let's talk about this controversy in Victoria now where the city council uh, passed that motion to ask the Department of National Defense and, and I think even more outrageously Veterans Affairs Canada to help pay for uh, what they call military events, including Remembrance Day. Let's check in with Keith Baldry now, Global BC Legislature Bureau Chief. Keith, this thing blew up on social media last night. I know, I know you were right in the thick of it last night, mm-hmm. t- tweeting about this. And oh, yeah. What's, what's your take on it? Oh, I think people almost universally are either outraged or disappointed, at the very least. They're uh, sort of, there they go again, Victoria's wacky yeah. city council. Uh, you know, removing Sir John A. Macdonald's statue. Ben Isaac, who was the mover of this motion, wanted to get rid of the horse-drawn carriages. He had to withdraw that before he was tarred and feathered at a public meeting. Uh, he wanted, originally, uh, early on in his career, he wanted to change the name of Victoria because it's colonialist. He wanted to change it to uh, uh, some some other name. So he's very 
left wing. He makes no. Uh, he wanted to change the name of Victoria. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it, because the name Victoria <laughs> is harkens back and is emblematic of our dark colonial. The colonial past. past yeah. So uh, you know, makes no bones about it. He's, he's very left wing um, and very uh, not not apologizing for it. And he's also anti-military. And I think yeah. that one of the big mistakes here is equating Remembrance Day ceremonies with a military event. This is a community. Come community event and it's a remembrance uh, day to remember uh, the veterans and those who fought in in wars in the hopes that they don't no one else has to do that in the future yeah like if i was going to define something as a military event i would say i don't know maybe war games that the military's uh, compete you know exercising in mm -hmm. in victoria and if, if he would say oh maybe the city of victoria shouldn't pay for that i can i can see that but Remembrance Day? I mean, that's not a military military event. That's a community event. Here in Victoria, it's a pretty big deal. It's oh, a yeah. big event. And it's one of the bigger ones in, in across the country. And it, it costs peanuts. Yeah, $15,000 or something. And I tell you, there's thousands of people that come out to these events every each and every year. The front lawn of the legislature is absolutely jam-packed as are the streets around the harbor. So the council got it wrong on this. Uh, ben Isaac got it wrong. It's not the first time he's been wrong on some of these issues. What's interesting, though, he wasn't the only one who voted for this. There was other councillors enough to actually pass the motion. One of those councillors, Laurel Collins, is the NDP candidate federally in the upcoming federal election. I just think she gave a, a gift wrap uh, bit of ammunition to her political opponents here. I'm sure are going to bring this out come October. Let's listen to a couple of sound clips here, Keith. Here is Victoria City Councillor Ben Isett. It's basically that council direct staff uh, to engage DND slash Veterans Affairs Canada officials to seek to recover costs associated with military events in the city. I think Veterans Affairs Canada is, is the more offensive part of that. I mean, I, I think asking the, the National Defense Department to pay for Remembrance Day is bad enough, but asking veterans to pay, mm -hmm. I mean, veterans have paid enough, okay? Yeah, yeah, and veterans yeah. have enough problems just, you know, meeting their own funding uh, shortfall uh, needs in terms of serving veterans. So again, uh, social media last night, uh, Twitter, I didn't see one comment uh, in, in backing the council and Ben Eisen on this, and quite the contrary. And he, his post today was even more bizarre, where he says, basically accusing what he calls the, um, the conservative agents in the corporate media of, of stirring this up. That'd I, be you, wouldn't it? That'd be me, you. Uh, yeah. Let's see, you're looking at Twitter uh, last uh, overnight. Patty Backus, the well, former yeah. school board chair, is not impressed with what, uh, with what he's doing. I've had a couple NDP cabinet ministers text me saying what the heck is going on over there with this council so uh, this the the disappointment for this move I think runs right across party lines and Mr. Ice is just sort of falling on the traditional oh it's the corporate media and the conservatives in bed with each other okay here is Ben Ice kind of doubling down on it and I think the overall context for this is our taxpayers who are relatively low income compared to other regional taxpayers are taking a huge amount of regional responsibilities. And I think it is appropriate for council to try to limit uh, the financial impact on taxpayers of these regional services as well as uh, the regional services we were just discussing with the last item around sports fields. It's, well, it's hardly any money, though, that they pay. I mean, no one gets paid for Remembrance Day. Okay, maybe you got a few police officers that make an overtime mm -hmm. working on a Remembrance Day, but... $2,000. Yeah, this is a few thousand deal. bucks. So, I mean, to me, this was this was just a purely kind of political stunt in a way because this this is like peanuts for – this is well, pennies on the dollar. One of the things at play here is – I've lived in this area, so have you, like, for decades, and we've seen the issue play out on other uh, things. And this is that Victoria – is the capital. It's a relatively small little part of the geography here. There's 13 municipalities. 
But all the events generally are all in Victoria. Canada Day, all the festivities do occur in Victoria to a much larger degree than the other places. And therefore, Victoria's Council does have to pay more money for these things than other places do. But I think this is hardly the the issue to the Hill to, to take a stand Well, on. it's like the mayor said, Lisa Helps, who voted against this motion, by the way, and this was not unanimously This passed. is making Lisa Helps look positively middle of the road. Yeah, I mean, she came out and said that we're the capital city here, so we have some extra responsibilities mm-hmm. to put on some of these events. I mean, the Remembrance Day service they do on the front lawn of the legislature, which I try to attend every year because it's so, so be- it's such a beautiful event. Yep. They do a wonderful job there mm-hmm. in front of that cenotaph on, on the front lawn. They do an they do an awesome job every year. They do. And she's saying, well, that's our responsibility is we're the capital yep. of this province. So this is our responsibility as a community and as a capital city to do this. It's not the responsibility of Veterans Affairs Canada to pay for this. No, it's uh, it's proverbial bad optics, we'll say, say that. Um, I think Mr. Isaac's going to emerge today and probably make some explanatory comments in the media. Oh, he's doubling down this morning on it, saying, oh, this is, uh, this is this the corporate media going after Going after well, me I can here. tell Mr. Isaac that I've, there's a whole bunch of NDP politicians not very happy with this because they yeah. think uh, they sort of partly wear this because they're seen as a, here, a left-wing the council. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about here's the thing about this guy. As you mentioned, he's you know self-described anti-militarist, which is which is fine. I mean, I don't have any problem with that. This is a free country, and but he owes his freedom to the to people who put their lives down on the line and and died you know on D-Day and and elsewhere. Uh, to, to hold the opinions that he does, which is the ultimate irony of the whole thing. But, you know, one of the other things he criticized was uh, Victoria bidding for the Invictus Games, which is uh, uh, games for uh, wounded mm-hmm. wounded soldiers to compete, which is another fantastic event that Victoria is trying yep. to get. And he he criticized that, saying this glor- potentially glorifies war. Now, I'm not disputing his right to say whatever he wants. But to do something like this, to, to pass a motion like this, I just thought it was insulting. And to do it on D-Day was yeah. just like insult to injury. He tried to say in his, his post today that this was unfortunate to happen on D-Day, but it was a, sort of a, a problem with the agenda, and they couldn't uh, do it any other way. But uh, that sort of added to the to the hostility here. Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, was the first out of the shoot. I Another NDP here. Uh, he, he was just blasting the council, saying, oh, you're doing this on, on D-Day, 75th anniversary of D-Day? How offensive, yeah. how... How uh, you know he was he was very upset by others. Another in. guy who's not a conservative. Let's have yeah. a little listen to Brad West. By the way, here he is. When we had our ceremony in Port Coquitlam, that was a privilege. That was an honor. And myself and the rest of our residents who showed up to stand quietly, to nod our head, and to thank the fewer and fewer veterans every year that we have remaining from. World War II, that's our responsibility. That was an honor for us to do that. And I think on any day, but especially today, what Victoria Council did was shameful, was disgraceful, was insulting, and all of them should be ashamed. Okay, it's Brad well, West. Brad uh, West's yeah. emerging is one of the more, I think, outspoken, influential mayors in Metro Vancouver, especially amongst yeah. the newcomers. He's really 
This is a young guy. Young guy. I've been saying this for some time. Keep an eye on this guy. He's going to play yeah. a, a prominent role in politics, both at that level and probably at provincial, if not federal levels in the future. Keith, thanks for coming in. All right. I appreciate it. Keith Baldry, Global BC Bureau Chief. He's following that story today. Hey, let's talk about one of the big stories of the week, and that is the plan by the city of Surrey to get rid of the RCMP and move to a local municipal police force. Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum rolling out that transition plan this week to go to a local police force. It's got the city divided. Uh, some people saying that the numbers are a little fuzzy, wondering whether we're going to have more or fewer cops on the streets of Surrey. How much is it going to cost people? Are the numbers low-balled in there? Let's have a little listen to the mayor. Here's Doug McCallum. A good part of the report suggests that the RCMP is top-heavy in management and that our residents and if you're looking at Vancouver City Police that they want our residents want more officers on patrol Um, and that's in this report I think if you look at the thing it says 16% more frontline officers that will be on the streets that will mean less management or less upper structure we need to change our um, structure so that we are putting a lot more officers out on our streets rather than sitting um, in management rules. Doug McCallum with one of the key talking points on his plan there saying they're going to put more frontline officers on the street fighting the bad guys, less cops sitting at a desk back at headquarters. This plan now goes to the provincial government and will be up to Solicitor General Mike Farnworth about whether to give it the green light or not. You can't proceed with this plan to go to a local police force unless the provincial government gives it the okay. Here's Farnworth. It's going to take the uh, um, the time it takes to do the job properly and thoroughly and it's not going to be a case of a, a, a snap decision in the next few weeks. Okay, so you're going to have to wait a little while, it sounds like, before we find out whether the province is going to approve this plan. One thing about Farnworth is, and some of his comments so far about McCallum and this plan, and this goes for John Horgan, the Premier, as well. These guys do not seem to be members of the Doug McCallum fan club. They haven't exactly been overly enthusiastic about this plan to get rid of the RCMP. Will they say no to it? That's going to be a key point to watch here in the days ahead. Let's talk about all these issues now with my guest, Cash Heed. He's the former Solicitor General of BC. Of course, he's the former police chief in West Vancouver. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hiya, Cash. Good morning, Michael. What did you think of that uh, transition report from the city of Surrey to a local police force this week? I have not had an opportunity to read the entire report, but uh, as indicated and as has been discussed for the last few months, Uh, it's well on its way. Uh, We're certainly aware that some of the debate that's taking place right now is not based on what is best for Surrey, what will work in Surrey. Unfortunately, it's all based on politics. It's based on political association, political lines. Having an understanding of the report that Kirk Griffiths did, and Kirk Griffiths is probably one of the top criminologists in Canada that knows the placing file, I have complete confidence that this is a valuable report, that it is accurate, and at the end of the day, maybe all the I's aren't dotted and T's are crossed, but it will deliver a more accountable, efficient, and effective police service for the residents and the people in Surrey. Okay. I thought you would earlier criticize the whole concept of switching to a local force. You change your mind now? Well, no, Michael. You know my feelings. My feelings are is that 
if we're going to reform policing, we should look at a metro-style police service because we're yeah. the only uh, region across Canada, and uh, matter of fact, in North America, with this amount of uh, dense population that has this a uh, balkanized system of 26, I believe, upwards of 28 now, uh, different police agencies policing this uh, this geographic area. So that's what I'm a fan of. But I'm also a fan of ensuring that we have. Uh, those effective police models delivering a contemporary style policing to the uh, people within this region. Okay, you heard Mayor Doug McCallum uh, say in that clip there that he thinks the RCMP is too top-heavy with management. He wants to see more cops on the front line actually fighting the bad guys, walking a beat on the street, being visible and responsive to the people in Surrey, and fewer uh, upper management or middle management officers sitting at a desk back in headquarters is is that like in your mind when you hear him say that is that just spin on this or do you think that's a legit way to approach this a, a bit of both it is very legitimate because the rcmp is is process driven versus outcome based with us putting those extra police officers on the street within our schools we have to make sure that there is an effective outcome of utilizing that type of police model so at the end of the day, let's not get overly concerned with the numbers. Let's get concerned about what the outcomes will be based on the numbers that are going to be deployed. The RCMP are very top-heavy and process-driven. When their number one uh, priority is, is the process where you start talking about bean counting and putting people in positions because you have X amount of constables, that's not the right approach. I'm one that's uh, looking towards an outcome-based uh, function of the new police uh, service in Surrey. When I take a look at the number of cops in the city of Surrey Cash, and I look at the crime rate, I look at the population stats, so one of the more common measures on this is the cop-by-pop stat, as they call yeah. it. Take a look at the population, how many police officers serve that population. Is it not clear that Surrey is underserved? They don't have enough police officers. They've got fewer police officers per capita than Vancouver and, and right next door in Delta, and they got more crime. I mean, what is wrong with this picture? Do they have enough cops in Surrey? No, they don't. Right. They have not had enough cops. And again, it's how you deploy those particular police officers. For the last 18 years, I've been talking about the fact that uh, they're short. So they've had plenty of warning that they've got, they're understaffed. Uh, unfortunately, the citizens and people that are in Surrey are having to suffer from this lack of protective services. But strongly, I was criticized years ago simply because we were talking about police reforms, Michael, and you and I have talked about them for over 12, 15 years now, yeah. too, and none of those reforms were actually put in. So now yeah. you have us at a crisis point in policing trying to deal with this. So for years, we know they, we've had uh, uh, not the right amount of police officers working on the streets in Surrey and delivering the service that's expected. Right, and this plan doesn't deliver significantly more police officers, so they're still in a hole, big time. Here's, here's, here's the point I want to make. Doug McCallum and Kurt Griffiths and all the people that were involved in this had a real opportunity here, and let's capitalize on that opportunity, is to create a contemporary model to deliver a protective services. Now, let's just 
talk that term for a while because it's just not, as you know, in this era of policing, that those uniformed police officers that are going to make a difference. We have to make sure we bring in all the other protective services that can make a difference because we've got a hybrid right now. Uh, or we want a hybrid in this model of community policing and intel-led policing. So the intel part of it, let's leave it up to the uniform officers that's utilize that. But let's really start to look at the other stakeholders that need to get involved in making a difference in Surrey. So if we have the right management in place, the right leadership, and we hold them accountable, Michael, uh, we'll be able to deliver that protective services that's required in that area. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Appreciate it. It's Cash Heed. He's the former Solicitor General of BC, the former Chief of the West Van Police Department. A good day to crack a cold one. And this week is Vancouver Craft Beer Week. And if you think like, oh, no, I missed it. Oh, no, you haven't. Because this weekend, there is a huge beer festival going on at the PNE. Let's check in with Ken Beatty now, Executive Director of the BC Craft Brewers Guild. Always a very busy guy. I'm always grateful for his time. Hi, Ken. How are you, Mike? I'm great. Thanks for coming on. Happy Craft Beer Week. It has been an outstanding week so far, and it's just going to accumulate this weekend. (laughs) What's been going on this week? Yeah, there's been a number of things. There was a launch party uh, to introduce uh, Vancouver Craft Beer Week as a collaboration beer. Uh, It's their 10th anniversary. And uh, so there was an opening night party last week. Uh, Minister Popham and the mayor of Vancouver were there, so that was good. And uh, and they launched their 10th anniversary beer, which is a dry hop table saison that I highly recommend people search out. Okay, what's going on this weekend at the PNE? So the PNE is uh, it's the it's there as I said 10th anniversary. It is um, it started it started with 15 breweries and 100 people and four passionate uh, organizers. And this year, it'll be the same four people, over 100 breweries and cideries, and 15,000 wow. people, and oh. 20 food trucks, and live entertainment. So it is just an awesome venue out at the PNE outside. Uh, hopefully, the weather cooperates, but there's lots of tenting, and uh, you know, you can, uh, you don't, be, don't let the weather scare you away. Oh, man, that sounds awesome. So that's going on Saturday and Sunday? Yeah, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, Saturday is at uh, 2 till 7, and uh, Sunday is 1 till 5. And I think the tickets are one day passes $39. Very can reasonable. You get, can you get tickets at the door? Uh, yeah, you could buy online. Okay, it's not sold out or nothing, is it? Not yet. Probably close. It usually oh. is really, it's, it's a massive event. for uh, brings a lot of tourists in from uh, around the uh, around the world honestly and a lot of people local people come to down to vancouver and people from vancouver so it's yeah it's a good event okay because i've seen some of these beer festivals this is so popular these craft beers that some of these festivals will sell out so would you recommend if someone wants if you want to go this weekend lickety split get online and get your tickets as soon as you finish listening to how great this conversation (laughs) will be get online yeah okay (laughs) or do two things at once (laughs) <laughs> yeah, crack crack a cold one, and uh, you know, well, three you things beer while you're doing. Yeah, three things. Okay, <laughs> Ken Beatty is the executive director, of BC Craft Brewers Guild. Here's here's the question I ask you every time you're on, Ken. How many breweries are there in BC now? There is now in planning over 180. Continues to grow. We've had a couple uh, recently open. Um, um, House of Funk in North Vancouver and another in North Vancouver called Wild Eye. Uh, both will be at the festival. 
In fact, uh, we have a BC Ale Trailer, which is 10 taps uh, at the festival. We're going to bring in 10 different breweries, and uh, a couple of the breweries are brand new, including Slackwater from uh, Penticton, and Wild Eye will be there, So, uh, and a couple of old favorites, such as Driftwood and Bomber and The Cannery. So stop by uh, the BC Ale Trailer and try uh, one of the 10 beers that we have on tap. Okay, the House of Funk. This house of funk. All right, the house of funk. I wouldn't mind cracking a house of funk beer this weekend in the Wild Eye Brewery. This is amazing. 180 breweries in BC. I mean, I'm just astounded by the continuing success of this sector. It just doesn't. It just never seems to stop growing. Yeah, and it continues. It's across Canada, which is yeah. is the best part. Uh, in fact, there's almost uh, the most recent numbers is there's 990 breweries across Canada now. And wow. I was in Toronto last week, uh, last month for not only the Canadian Brewing Awards, but the announcement of uh, the Canadian uh, Craft Brewers Association. So all 10 provinces in all uh, territories are represented in a new national organization that will further um, the interests of craft brewing and locally owned and operated businesses. Okay, speaking of those Canadian Brewing Awards, how did British Columbia do there? As usual, we did really, really well. Yeah, we picked up uh, uh, 50, fi- 50 medals, including, um, or not, fi- yeah, 50 medals, uh, 15 golds. We swept in two categories, and Central City won as the best in show beer uh, in Canada. Wow. So we had another really successful, uh, really successful uh, weekend there. Oh, what was, the, what was that beer that won best in show? It's called After Hours. It was a, it was a mix. Um, they were also doing some distilling, and they used their single malt scotch, Lone and McKinnon scotch, and they put it into a pale ale. Oh, my so God. So they did a bit of a fusion, and it was outstanding. Okay. You also mentioned there's a national association being set up, Canadian Craft Brewers Association. What are you guys hoping to achieve with that? Yeah, it's to educate. I mean, basically, it's to, to to be able to do. Each province has a has a pretty robust, um, depending on the size of the, the number of breweries and members, but a pretty robust provincial um, association. But there's certain things we need to do federally, like the escalator tax, which you and I have talked about before. Yeah. It's an ongoing tax that moves up every April first in perpetuity with no consultation and no vote. Um, so it's issues like that, excise tax. In the U.S., the, uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate are working to lower excise taxes in the alcohol, uh, in the beer industry, in order to generate more business. In Canada, we continue to raise the taxes, um, which at some point will become a barrier and will stop the momentum. So there'll be some advocacy work. Uh, there'll be some contribution, you know, kind of sharing of best practices across the provinces, what works, how do you, how, what works for us. We have a really robust tourism piece. And in Quebec, they have a really robust safety and quality assurance program. So we're going to share ideas along that way. And then lastly, we're, in, we're launching an independent seal that's probably the most exciting thing. Most uh, number of jurisdictions in the world have independent seals. It's a local, local independent seal that will identify that the breweries with this seal are locally owned and operated, and they're not part of a foreign domestic-owned uh, uh, business. Okay, that's interesting. Is that kind of like a, a, like a wine appellation kind of setup? Uh, well, it won't be regional. It'll just be that this says that you're a, a, you're a qualified, you're a member of your provincial association, which means you're, you're not owned by, you don't have a partner that is a worldwide uh, 
world, you know, dominating okay. international breweries. So, oh, okay, um, so if you want to make sure you're drinking the real local stuff, you'd look for that seal. Yeah, because yeah. there's so many, particularly in Ontario, where there's a much more robust kind of contract manufacturing situation, where you're not sure if that's actually locally made, or is that made by uh, who says they made it, or is it made by another yeah. company uh, through a third party, and they're just a marketing company. So right. we're trying to avoid that uh, and let people know, because people want to buy local, they want to support local in so many different areas, including beer. Okay, speaking to Ken Beatty from the BC Craft Brewers Guild, that escalator tax that you mentioned that you guys you guys are fighting, that is a very sneaky tax because the way this thing works is that this tax on beer just goes up automatically every year, as you mentioned on April 1st. That's why it's like an escalator, just keeps going up and up and up. And it's so political because it just shields those politicians from taking the blame every year, you know, from actually passing a tax increase in a budget or something and actually taking responsibility for it is the tax goes up every year i think i think that's just designed to to insulate them from criticism of raising taxes every year on beer yeah i mean it's it, yeah, the beer is one of the most taxed it's 47 percent of the cost of uh, a, pre, a case of wow. beer is taxed we're, we're it's one of the high and they continue to grow it and they never can the, the that really gets the industry is they never consulted with the industry it just occurred and it's in perpetuity so it doesn't matter what yeah. government is in <laughs> That's the most amazing part. I, I can't. I, I'm. On, I'd be great if one of the your listeners could tell me that there's another tax that works like that. I've never heard of it. Yeah. Well, I wonder if the. I wonder what Andrew Shear and his what his position is on that tax. I mean, he's supposed to be a tax fighter. Would the would a federal the federal conservatives repeal that? I wonder. Do you know if they're on? Well, the this is one of the reasons. This is one of the reasons that we need a national organization uh, to work together uh, to to ask exactly those questions. So we'll yeah. be. Uh, I, I don't have an answer for that, but that certainly yeah. is. We we spend a lot of time in Beer Canada, another association that we work closely with, has been been really working adamantly on this business for uh, since it started. Okay, next time I'm talking to Sheer, I'm going to ask him that if he's going to get rid of Please that tax. Do. Yeah, yeah, I will. <laughs> 5540. Thank you. Cool. There's always lots of good calls in this one. Yeah. People like their beer. <laughs> do you like the craft beer? Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't mind trying a little bit of it. Some, some of it I don't really like, to be honest. But I'm, I got a kind of a boring palate. No. Yeah. But I like some of this stuff. I mean, I like to drink like Hoyen Pilsner and stuff like that. You know. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi as we continue talking to Ken Beatty, Executive Director, BC Craft Brewers Guild. Your calls to him, 604-280-9898. Hey, Ken, real quick, just before we take a couple of calls, do you think craft craft beers sometimes get a bad rap as being kind of, like, I don't know, there's like a snob element to it or kind of snooty? I don't think so. I think that okay. people, um, I really don't. I, it, there is definitely some some passionate people there that might like in anything but i think the sense of community and the sense of welcoming people have and the vast vast majority of people want to introduce you to their beers just to try something different not in a snotty way in much more of a hey you got to try this it's like you know if you see a good movie you want to tell somebody about it okay let's go to nick on the open line hi nick Hey, guys, and that's what I'm here for. 
Fernie Craft Beer. Have you tried it? Because I tell you, it's absolutely fantastic. Fernie, Ken, you know that one? Oh, yeah, it's excellent. In fact, I am looking at their gold medal from the Canadian uh, Brewing Awards. I have it in my house. I haven't sent it to them yet. Uh, For North American-style pale ale, it's uh, the Camp Out West Coast Pale. They are a very respected brewery. They do great work uh, throughout, great brewers throughout the year, always. And they're based in Fernie, I guess. They're in Fernie, yeah. Okay. yeah. And they have been, they've been in existence for quite a while and really successful. Can you typically get their stuff in, in stores all around B.C.? You, you sure can. They're okay. well listed, actually, in the government stores and the private stores. Okay. Brian in Surrey, hi. Hi. Uh, there's a brewery on the North Shore Bridge. Yeah, and they have a, a prime time that's really light and it's not fattening, and it's really good. I don't know if others have heard of it or not. Ken, you know that one? Yes, I do. It's it's prime time. It is. Uh, we're actually doing a, a BC Ale Trail uh, display in fifty liquor stores this week, uh, starting in June. In fact, it's already started. And prime time is one of those beers. It's low cal and uh, it's kind of. A, Keto friendly, let's say, to an extent. Okay, and it wouldn't go. Yeah, so it's, so a it's light, really light good. Beer. My wife's favorite beer currently. <laughs> oh really? Okay, light beer. Well, I'm always looking for a light beer. I mean, I'll try that one. Not Brian. my light. Not light. My wife's favorite beer. Okay. Five <laughs> percent, but it's low, low in calories uh, and low in carbs. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's a good one. Let's go to Don in Delta. Hi guys. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to my two favorite breweries that are about six minute drive apart, just a couple minutes each from the George Massey Tunnel. You got Four Winds in Delta, which is absolutely amazing. They've won for Canada's Brewery of the Year and Beer of the Year before. And uh, Fuggles and Warlocks in Richmond, served uh, by Five and Steveston. Uh, absolutely amazing beers, great sours there. I actually have a buddy of mine that's come up from Seattle for the day. He's going to Daggerad up in uh, up oh, in yeah. Burnaby because he's a huge Belgian fan. And I brought some beers down to Seattle with him for him before, and now he's up here with a buddy just to go to that brewery. That's how much he likes those beers. Cool. Thanks for the thanks very much for the call. The Daggerad. The last time we talked, Ken, we talked about that Daggerad Belgian style beer before, and so I went out and tried it. It was pretty awesome stuff. Yeah, they yeah. won Canadian Brewery of the Year and had three gold medals at last year's uh, last year's um, uh, Canadian Brewing Awards. But you hear what he said? His buddy's coming up from Seattle. I mean, this is one of the great things about this: is a tourism draw, right? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a new thing that we've added this year is the BC Ale Trail app, right. and it's available on uh, Google Play or the App Store. It includes every seventeen of the there are seventeen different trails over fifty communities around the province. Um, it's free, and uh, it's a reward program, and it geolocates when you get to the brewery as long as you're online, and you click wow. rewards, and it tells you everything you need to know about the breweries and the breweries in your area. So if someone's coming from Seattle and they've never been to Vancouver or they're looking for something specific, chances are that that brewery's going to be on that app. So I highly recommend people to uh, download that. It's the quintessential beer tourism tool. Okay, the BC Ale Trail app. Let's go to Dave yeah. in East Van. Hi, Dave. Oh, hey, uh, Mike, Ken, how's it going? Yeah, I wanted to mention uh, East Van Brewery on Venables, just west of Commercial. It's got a great selection of beer, um, really great tasting room, great people, great community feel. Uh, The room's actually quite large, too, so you go there on a Friday or Saturday, good chance of getting a good seat. Um, It'd actually be a great place to hit this uh, Sunday, because Italian Dave is on on the drive. Oh, 
be a great destination down on the bottom of uh, commercial, just west of uh, on Venables, just west of commercial. Oh yeah, I bet it'll be hopping. Get it hopping. It's a great. It's a great. I highly recommend their their dark beers, particularly their stouts. There, they they do a great job. They make really good beer, but their stouts are really excellent. James, the brewer there, is outstanding. Logan in Kamloops. Hi. Hey, uh, I just wanted to give a big shout-out to Cronogue Ales in Sorrento, B.C. They're Canada's first certified organic on-farm microbrewery. They grow all their hops organically, and they make one of the most well-respected stouts in B.C. called the Backhand of God Stout. So really wanted to give them a shout-out. <laughs> I, lo- yeah. I love some of the names. The Backhand of God Stout. Wow. Yes. Okay. If you get a chance, you should try it. It's one of the most well-respected breweries around. It's been, they've been in operation for 18 years now, so... Just wanted to give him a, a shout out. Okay, cool. Th- glad you got through. Becky in Abbotsford. Hi, Becky. Uh, sir, it's Stephanie. Oh, sorry, <laughs> Stephanie. Go ahead. You got to go quick, okay. though. Go ahead. Uh, oh, so I wanted to give a shout out to Fieldhouse in Abbotsford and Loudmouth. Uh, Fieldhouse makes a fantastic sourdough goose and a salted porter. Uh, it's also dog friendly and they make phenomenal food that's locally resourced. Um, and then Loudmouth. Dog friendly. They're dog, dog friendly. friendly. Phenomenal. Okay. If it's a hot day and you can't go out anywhere with your dog, okay. you can go to field house and sit on the lawn and drink a good beer. Thanks, Stephanie. All right, let's talk about the big hoops game tonight. It is game four of the NBA Finals. What a golden opportunity here for the Toronto Raptors to take a stranglehold on this thing. They lead 2-1 after that big epic win in the last game on the road against the Golden State Warriors. A big game for tonight. Let's check in with Alan Carter now, global news anchor, host of the Alan Carter Show on the ground in Oakland, California. Alan, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay, this is an exciting assignment for you. Now, you're in downtown Oakland. Um, I, I understand you're getting ready to talk to the mayor, right? What's going on there? Yeah, so I'm just about to go into uh, City Hall uh, and talk to Oakland's mayor. And we're going to talk to her about the bet that she has with Toronto's mayor. Uh, there's a number of things on the line, some craft beer. Also, there is um, a, a pea meal sandwich. Now, I don't know, I don't know if you understand pea meal, uh, because apparently here in Oakland, they do not. The, she has referred to it in a couple of interviews as a bacon sandwich. That She says, well, the Toronto mayor has offered up a bacon sandwich. Uh, if you have been to Toronto and you have had a sandwich from St. Lawrence Market, it ain't bacon, baby. It's pea meal. Yeah. A.K.A. back bacon, some people call it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's how we roll. Okay. Yeah. No legal marijuana as part of the bet here, though, I assume. No, I, I, okay. I, I'm disappointed. Okay. Okay. Alan, so now the team, the Oakland are the, uh, the Golden State Warriors are based in Oakland now, but they're they're getting set to move down the road to San Francisco. Is that correct? Yeah. So this is their last uh, season in Oracle arena and next season, uh, the beginning of uh, you know September or October, when the uh, season gets underway, they will be across the Bay at a new chase center, which is just being completed now. And so that is going to be a big loss for Oakland. Yeah. Um, and that is one of the things we're going to be talking to the mayor about because, you know, there's a lot of people that travel over the bridge and come from San Francisco and from all other points to come and watch the, the Warriors play. 
And now they'll be playing in San Francisco, a more upscale neighborhood. But what it will allow uh, the Warriors to have is something more akin to Jurassic Park. It, it's funny, you know, people say, oh, what's the fan, you know, situation like there at Oakland? Like, well, it's a giant parking lot is what it is. And so there isn't any. Uh, but in, in the new Chase Center, there will be a lot more opportunity for what you're starting to see is a real trend all over the NBA and even in the NHL now, which is, you know, getting the fans to come to an open space near the arena and party. And then you get that big shot of all the fans outside. And, and that's really, I think, what all the leagues are looking to. And that really began in Toronto at yeah. Jurassic Park. Yeah, no, really. I guess Toronto's really leading the way on that one. I guess uh, we've made it, the fans have made an impact for sure. Have you seen any Raptors fans down there? Oh, my goodness, there are so many. And uh, at Game 3, there were just a ton in the stadium. And and you may have seen this on social media. At the end of the game, when the Raptors won, all the Raptors fans went down to courtside in Oracle and sang the national anthem (laughs) while security was trying to shoo them out. Uh, And then uh, last night we were here in Oakland, and just, you know, I I was in a restaurant in Oakland, and I wasn't there for long. And sure enough, they're walking right down the street with a guy in a Raptors jersey, in a, in a Leonard jersey, on a non-game day, just walking through Oakland, repping the Raptors. you got to love that. I got, yeah, that is awesome. I mean, they've got great fans, and the whole country here is behind the team now. It's like we're all on the edge of our collective seats. Big game tonight, tip-off, 6 p.m. our time. What do you, what, what's the vibe down there with this game? Are the Oakland fans worried down there? I bet they are. Well, you know, that's funny. I don't think they are. First of all, they're Californian, so they're wicked chill uh, to begin with. (laughs) And then the second thing is that this is a team with a history of winning. And there's no panic here yet. Sure, they're down two to one. Now, maybe if they lose tonight, there will be a little bit more, you know, clutching at the throat here in Oakland uh, amongst the, the fans and throughout the Bay Area. But I think they're supremely confident. They've seen their team win before. Remember, they've been in the finals for the last four years, and they won three of them. Okay, we know Oakland's banged up. they got some key injuries. They've been without their star, Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, uh, the sharpshooter there from three points, three-point land. He was out of the last game, but he's back tonight, it appears, Clay Thompson. Yeah, Clay Thompson definitely will play tonight. That's what Steve Kerr, the coach, said. Uh, Kevin Durant is still out. He has not practiced with the team. He was not in the practice yesterday. And Steve Kerr, again, the coach, saying he's not going to rush Durant back. So we don't even really know if Durant it could be ready for Game 5 on Monday in Toronto. Okay, what's your sense of this Raptors team? What, I was reading some analysis uh, last night about how confident this this team is. Kendrick Perkins, who's a, a well-known former player and a well-known analyst, he, he, I was just looking at his tweet this morning. He said he witnessed something really scary after that game, the last game. The Toronto players were walking back to their locker room, and there, nobody was celebrating. Nobody was smiling. He said, these guys are locked in. They want to win this thing. What, what's your read of them? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's 100% on the money. Um, and that is all led by Kawhi Leonard, not yeah. just on the floor, not just in a basketball sense, but Kawhi Leonard is – as stoic as you can be. There's a great video you may have seen from uh, the beginning of Game 3 
where Norm Powell, the, the Raptors are just about to walk through onto the court. You know, they're all getting ready. And Norm Powell puts out the fist pump, and he, he's got his fist out to Kawhi, and Kawhi just looks at him, refuses to fist pump him, and just says, <laughs> no, let's go play basketball. Yeah, let's and that, get it done. I think that really says so much about Kawhi Leonard, which is like, ah, man, I'm just, I'm just out here to win a championship. Forget about all the rest of it. I'm just here to do my job. Yeah, yeah. No, this guy does his talking on the court, and yeah. – you know, when I, when I watch an interview with Kawhi Leonard, he's kind of a boring interview. He's just all business. So he just wants to go out there and win, which I, which I think is awesome. Do you got any sense of, of that guy's future? I mean, he's such a superstar. I wonder if, if this could be, this is a terrible thing to ponder, but could it be his last season with the team, especially if they win the title? I mean, he could demand, he could ban the moon, the stars, the sun, and all the dark matter in the universe here in a contract with, for free agency. Do you think he's going to stay with the Raptors? Well, you know, that is uh, the, the bazillion-dollar question, and obviously yeah. it's on the minds of so many Toronto Raptors fans who are hoping, first of all, to hoist the trophy and then to keep Kawhi. And I can tell yeah. you that all over Toronto there are businesses that are offering any number of free things to Kawhi if he would stay. There's a, there's a children's barbershop, children's uh, haircutting salon in my neighborhood in Toronto that has a sign out the front that says, Free Braids for Kawhi. So just to give you a sense of everybody just really hoping that, you know, we can get him again, we can re-sign him. But you're right. I mean, whether they win or not, his dominant play in this playoff run is going to mean that he will, he will command top dollar. And the thing is, is he will be able to choose where he wants to go. He can pick wherever he wants to go. And we're all hoping he chooses to stay in Toronto. Yeah, that would be nice. But it would be even better if he can win this title for us first. And, uh, Alan, enjoy your stay down there. Good luck explaining what a pea meal sandwich is to the mayor of Oakland there. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right, I will. Thank you. All right, that's Alan Carter. He's the global news anchor. He's the host of the Alan Carter Show in Oakland, California today, getting set for the big game tonight between the Toronto Raptors, the Golden State Warriors, game four of the NBA Finals, tip off at 6 p.m. Hey, let's talk about plastic pollution in our society now, and especially in our oceans and plastic getting into our waters. Plastic touches all of our lives, really, when you think about it on a daily basis, how often do you interact with plastic items? I mean, from food packaging we buy, the computers you're working at, if you're driving your car right now, a lot of that is plastic. But a lot of the plastics that you touch on a daily basis are uh, single-use-only plastics. You use them once, and then you throw them away. How much of this stuff ends up in the ocean? Well, a lot more than you might think. People may have seen a lot of those photos of plastic in our oceans, the see the islands of plastic that you see sometimes in, in uh, videos and photos, which is just astonishing. What can be done about it? Well, check this out. Twelve leading ocean conservancy and environmental groups banding together now to ask the federal government in Ottawa to declare plastics uh, a Schedule One toxic substance under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. That would allow the government to pass a lot of laws to regulate the use of plastics. Let's check in now with one of the groups uh, that's behind this effort. Lily Woodbury is the chapter manager for Surf Rider Pacific Rim. Hi, Lily. Hello. Thank you for having us. Thanks for coming on. What is Surf Rider Pacific Rim? What is that? So I'm actually representing Surf Rider Foundation, the three chapters that are in British Columbia. 
And uh, our mission is the protection and enjoyment of the ocean, beaches, and waves. Okay, does that include surfing? Yes, it does include waves for surfing, but it goes beyond surfing. It's for everyone who depends on the coast, the ocean, for recreation, for careers, for culture, for everything. Okay, how much of this plastic ends up in our oceans? I think a lot of people might think, well, if I recycle it or I throw it in the garbage, it's going to go to a landfill site. It's not going to go in the ocean. How does it end up in the ocean, this stuff? That's a great question. So as, as we know, Canada's plastics recycling rate is at 9%. So the rest is sent to landfills or incinerators or sent unwittingly to developing nations. Uh, or, as you've mentioned, it gets lost to ecosystems. And this could be marine ecosystems in the ocean. This could be freshwater. This can be terrestrial. And as we know, it is 29,000 metric tons are lost to the environment on an annual basis. Okay, what's the impact of that? The impact is, is immense. It causes harm to obviously the environment and biodiversity through animal entanglement, uh, consumption by animals, and the uptake of chemicals breaking down uh, from, the chemo- from the plastics themselves, as well as the, the chemicals the plastics absorb, like persistent organic pollutants, uh, from the human consumption of marine species who have ingested these plastics, and of course the impact on all of the beaches and the coastline where this plastic is washing up. Okay, what do you want the government to do about it? Well, as you mentioned, we want them to add plastic waste uh, and waste discharge from the use or disposal of products or packaging to Schedule 1. And what this would uh, allow the federal government to do would be to fulfill four major recommendations that we have. Uh, First being to pass laws requiring that producers of products containing plastics or using plastic packaging to collect and recycle them through extended producer responsibility, to require that recycled plastics be used in the making of products and packaging, uh, thus creating a domestic demand for recycled plastic, which right now there is not, to ban single-use plastic items that, despite citizens' best efforts, are not collected and end up as litter and in the marine and freshwater environments, and uh, to also reduce microplastic waste that is discharged from textiles and other products that pollute marine species, which Canadians do consume. Okay, do any other countries around the world approach it like that, with that kind of uh, regulatory crackdown on it? Yes, absolutely. There's many countries all over the world who are uh, taking a regulatory approach. There are many states in the U.S. that have content, recycled content standards that are implementing EPR, that have comprehensive single-use plastic bans in place, like Hawaii, where they have cutlery, foam, straws, bags. It's not just one item, it's the whole, you know, a whole list of single-use plastic items. Uh, the UK, as well as many other places in Germany, sorry, Germany and Europe, have really great EPR regulations, as well as higher deposits for beverage containers, including plastic containers, which means that their recycling rate is way higher than what we have here in Canada. And of course, So many countries around the world are banning all types of single-use plastics on every continent. And to be quite uh, quite frank, Canada is quite behind in this regard. Okay, I guess a lot of people might think that is this even possible to to make a difference because plastic is just so so common. It's just so ubiquitous. Every single day we're interacting with with this stuff. Is it really possible to require recycling of of every single little bit of, of plastic that's used on a daily basic daily basis is that is that possible can what it, what it, i mean what would be the the uh uh the fundamental aspects of of collecting all that stuff and as and can it physically be recycled 
Yes, absolutely. It is possible and it needs to happen. Our oceans are facing a crisis. We are facing a global biodiversity crisis, climate change. Like we all, all of this is happening. We have to do this, you know, and it's not about recycling every single plastic. As you've mentioned, there is plastic in vehicles. There's plastic in construction. So these are, these are types of plastics that aren't going to be recycled right away. Of course, having, um, having there be avenues for these items to be recycled at the end of their life is obviously going to be very beneficial. And as mentioned, one of the ways to do that is through extended producer responsibility. So the producers of any kind of plastic product is responsible for the whole life cycle of that product. And you can pass laws to make that happen. Instead of right now where producers are, they produce a plastic, they produce a product, and then once they've made it and it's distributed, it's no longer their responsibility. Well, that is the issue because then it becomes a waste product that causes all of these problems that then all Canadians end up paying for we end up collectively paying for and so that that needs to change and it's absolutely possible to work towards a circular plastics economy that is more efficient that is more effective and can actually benefit industry okay i'm speaking to lily woodbury from Surfrider foundation canada it's a group uh, that protects the uh, ocean beaches when you walk when you visit the beach lily what kind of plastic waste do you uh, typically see uh, in the water. I mean, if, if you walk down on a typical beach, can you see this stuff? Yeah, you can. You find all different types. Of course, consumer plastics, again, the single-use plastics, cutlery bags, straws, coffee cups, water bottles, a lot of water bottles. Those are one of the most frequent. Uh, cigarette butts, of course. Then you're also finding a lot of products from industry. So you're finding fit um, fishing ropes, you're finding styrofoam, you're finding different items from the aquaculture industry, we're finding nurdles. And so it really is a mix from from different sectors that, that we find and collect and recycle. Lily, thanks for coming on and talking about it today. Yes, thank you for having us. Okay, you're welcome. That's Lily Woodbury, Surf Rider Foundation Canada. That's one of the environmental and ocean protection groups that have banded together here. Let's talk about a budget overrun at BC Ferries. This one kind of gives me a little bit of deja vu. When you think back all those years ago to the fast ferries and some other problems with budgets they've had at BC Ferries, here we go again. The newest ferry in the BC Ferry fleet is the Northern Sea Wolf. Now, I, I love that name. This is a great name for for a boat. This is the one that sails from the northern tip of Vancouver Island up to Bella Coola. If you've ever taken, if you ever want to do a staycation in British Columbia, you could do that famous circle route where you take this particular ferry, go up through the Caribouchal Coat, and then come back down to the lower mainland. That is an awesome way to see the, our beautiful province. Well, I'll tell you what, this new ferry, they bought it used from Greece. It was a fixer-upper. They had to do a little refit on there. Turned out to be a money pit. The guy who broke the story is my colleague, Rob Shaw, columnist of the Vancouver Sun. He joins me now. Hey, Rob. Hey, Mike. Okay, thanks for coming on. So where did we get this uh, this this boat from, the Northern Sea Wolf? Yeah, well, BC Ferries kind of bought it in a bit of a rush. So they went out there, they tried to find what they were looking for, and they couldn't find too many ships that fit the bill. So they ended up at this Greek shipyard, and they sent over some people to take a look at it. They got this ferry independently certified is ready to float uh, in class they call it and uh, then they bought it sailed it 
10,000 nautical miles from Greece through the Panama Canal all the way to Victoria and uh, got it back to shipyards here in the coast and cracked it open and discovered they'd pretty much bought a big a big lemon of a <laughs> of a ship and uh, when they finally got the panels off this thing they noticed there was no um, fire retardant asbestos behind the walls there was no uh, sprinklers that the, the sprinklers didn't work they weren't connected the heating and um, uh, air conditioning uh, system didn't work. The propeller shafts were worn beyond safety code. The elevators weren't to code. There was some sort of problem with the stern door. And then there were sections of the ship where the um, steel thickness was below the minimum uh, strength in some spots. It sounds bad. I'm not, I mean, no engineer, but that sounds bad. Wow. And so they started fixing this thing up, and pretty soon the budget takes off on them. And a $55, $56 million ship balloons to 76 million and it ends up being a year late as well and uh the northern sea wolf is uh is out there plying the waters but um it was a it was a pretty big reno project much bigger than bc ferries had planned from the start okay so the original budget 55.7 million it ends up 76 millions so and more than 20 million over budget yeah that's it yeah Okay, and that by my math, that's about a, what a forty forty odd percent over budget increase. Yeah, it's uh, it was as the CEO of BC Ferries told me it was. Uh, uh, he doesn't like calling it a lemon because he says, "Look, you know, <laughs> it's like a home rental project that you do at your house. You know, you start busting open the drywall, you discover, uh oh, you know, like maybe this is a little bit bigger than we thought it was going to be." Next thing you know, you're telling your wife you're going to do the kitchen as well because you might as well because the walls are all open, and bang, you know you're into it. you're into it for a lot more than you thought you were going to be into it for. And he says, "Okay, fine, we put the money in. We actually got a pretty good ship now. We've got because they were doing all that. They replaced the restaurant. They um, put in a viewing area at the top so you can look at the wildlife. Uh, they got basically kind of a brand new ship because they they took her down to the studs and built her back up again." I don't think a ship has studs, actually, but the, the metaphor works in a certain way. And uh, and so Ferry says, look, we put more money in, but we got an okay ship, and we're happy with it, even if uh, it costs more. Okay, well, yeah, it turned out to be a money pit, but if you're going to buy a house, like if, if this guy's using the metaphor, it's like buying a house, and you find out the, the reno or the house is going to be expensive, you typically hire a home inspector to take a look at that house before you buy it. And weren't these guys... Didn't they supposedly inspect this ferry, like you said, before they bought the thing? I mean, was it a maybe the inspection was in, inadequate? Yeah, so they had a third party group um, declare this vessel in class, which is a marine terminology that um, means that it meets certain requirements to, to be on the ocean. And BC Ferries is going back after this group and trying to launch a claim to say we didn't get what we bought, we paid for here, and that your kind of assessment was faulty. Now, Ferries did send its own staff out there as well, and I'm I'm not sure how they missed this as well, but um, Ferries hopes they can get some money back or something back from this group. And And the lesson that they have learned, which I think many people already know, is uh, whether you're buying a used car or a home or a Greek ferry, you should always get a second opinion on your on your inspection because uh, sometimes the first uh, the first pass over the thing is doesn't catch all the problems. 
All right, speaking to Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw about his scoop on the budget overruns on the Northern Sea Wolf. That's the newest ferry in the ferry fleet. I got to say, Rob, just taking a look at the, the photos of this thing, it's not a bad-looking boat, especially with the, the new paint job they got on there. It looks pretty nice. Yeah, it is pretty nice, you know. And it was The ferry said, look, they were trying to find a very particular type of ship. It's about 35 cars, 100 and some odd people, 150 passengers, it has to be a closed deck, so a lot of ships that that, are that size are open um, deck, and it needs to be able to handle the open sea. So that, that route can get a little bit rougher than the route from, you know, uh, to Washington uh, to Swartz Bay. So that, was, that made it a very unique ship, and it was down to three or four types of ships in the world. Now, I'm sure some people out there are saying, well, why didn't we just build our own custom ship? And the reason for that, actually is you got to go back to the history of this route. It was the B.C. Liberals who canceled this route from Port Hardy to Bella Coola in 2013. Right. And that was, that was because B.C. Ferries was losing money. We had a bunch of fare hikes. Everyone was really upset about the B.C. Ferries. Um, so the Liberals came in and they cut a bunch of routes, and that was one of them. Then, lo and behold, there's an election come up in 2017, and Christy Clark, the premier, says, hey, why don't we put that route back? So they put the route, they announced that they're bringing the route back, but they don't consult BC Ferries. And they set a timeline of spring 2018. And BC Ferries was telling me that they basically told the government, look, we're going to do the best we can, but that is an awfully tight timeline. And it meant they didn't have enough time to build a new ship. They had to go buy a used one. And also if they were going to build a new ship in BC, it'd probably be twice the cost. So this, $70 $70 million ship ends up would have been a hundred and hundred and forty million dollar new build. And you'd have to, you know, get the right people and skilled labor and shipyards. So, you know, it's a, it's a constant debate. I think in BC ferries, do you buy overseas or do you build here? Right. Um, and in this case, they, they went the cheaper route um, and it didn't work out for them. Okay. So at the end of the day, if I'm going to figure out who I'm going to point the finger at for the political blame on this thing. So if I was asking you that, Rob, like who dealt this mess? Because the budget overruns on this boat obviously happened, I guess, largely on the NDP's watch here and then the, with the NDP government. But if you go back to the original reason that we had to buy the darn thing in the first place, it's the liberals. So who, who's to blame for this thing? The liberals or the NDP? Yeah. I think you got to point it at the liberals because they're the ones who canceled it brought it back, set a weird timeline, forced everybody to scramble and, and left this kind of mess. Now, it, it doesn't excuse that BC Ferries ended up having to put more money into this thing, but by the time you bought it and sailed it all the way over here, what are you going to do with it uh, other than kind of finish it through? And the other, the kind of the cherry on top of this um, wasted taxpayer money Sunday is remember when the Liberals cancelled that route, they sold off the ship that used to ply that water, and that was the Queen of Chilliwack. And the Queen of Chilliwack had just gone under a $15 million retrofit. And the Liberals canceled the route, and they sell off the boat for $2 million to a former BC Ferries uh, engineer who's running his own private ferry service in Fiji. So somewhere in Fiji right now, there's a really nice Queen of Chilliwack that you and I paid to upgrade that got sold for a song, um, and that was another bungle in this mess, and that was also the Liberals that did that. So I think you have to squarely blame former Minister Todd Stone and uh, the Liberal government for this mess. Okay. 
you sold me on that. I'm blaming the Liberals on this one. <laughs> Rob, nice scoop on that one. Thanks for coming on. Okay, thanks. That's Rob Shaw, columnist at the Vancouver Sun, talking about that exclusive he had on that cost overrun on that northern BC ferry.